This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good to be with you all this evening. It is hard to say evening. Kyle was right. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Zach Lutz. I'm pastor here at Trinity Church, um, and this service is a little bit different. First of all, I think we need a, a short round of applause for Morgan for reading that long passage. Right? Um, thank you. Uh, part of the reason that I wanted that to be so long uh, is that the crucifixion is arguably one of the most famous events in human history. And yet, it's rare that we read or have read to us the whole story from the beginning to the end, from the arrest to the burial. Now, I'll be talking about a lot of those aspects uh, today, but I, I wanted us to, to sit and listen to that. Now, uh, sitting and listening to it, I didn't notice, it's hard to sit and listen to somebody read the Bible, isn't it? We don't practice it that way uh, as much anymore. Um, it used to be that way uh, for thousands of years for Christians, before we all had our own Bibles, uh, they heard and listened to someone else preach. That's how they heard the story of Christ's crucifixion. Now, this most famous event in all of human history uh, makes a claim about us. Makes a claim about what we need. It claims that we need saving, that we need to be reconciled to God, that we need to be brought from death to life, that we have disobeyed our creational orders, and in this disobedience, we have sentenced ourselves to death, spiritual, physical, relational death. Now, death seems pretty normal, right? Um, there's two things we can't escape in this life, death and taxes, and this being April 15th, it's fitting that we would recognize both. Um, but Taxes have a certain amount of normalcy and understanding. We, we recognize uh, that, you know, there is some good things that taxes need to be collected for, that a government should collect, collect for. And although we try to make death normal, we recognize that we all experience it and it touches all of our lives. There's actually something fundamentally unnormal about death. And as one author has said it, to call death natural is a lie. I think we all experience this, actually. We have that unsettled feeling that death isn't supposed to happen. We hide it away. We don't want to look at it. We don't even want to see roadkill. We don't know how to console friends that have lost loved ones. We don't know how to console ourselves. With the sudden realization that something that we love or someone that we love is now gone, and they are no more. Death echoes within our heart a disturbance that shouldn't be there. It reminds us of something. Now, Christianity actually affirms this to be true. It says that this feeling that we have is actually um, a reflection uh, within us that recognizes that the world is not right now the way that it should be, that something's wrong, something's unnormal. And death is actually that window where we get to see it most clearly. Ecclesiastes will say that it is better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting. Because the house of mourning, where death is, doesn't try to avoid the cold, cruel truth that death happens. 
that it is not normal, that it shouldn't be there. Christianity affirms all of these things, that death should not be there, that it is awful to experience. Now, Ecclesiastes doesn't tell us to go to the house of mourning because Scripture is sadistic and wants us to feel awful and sad all the time. It wants us to go to the house of mourning to acknowledge that something is profoundly wrong with our world, that it needs saving. Death is profoundly unhuman. It shouldn't happen. Now, Christianity in the Bible also says that death will someday be defeated, that normalcy will be restored. How in Christianity does it say that death will be defeated? Well, if you read the Bible, it's this whole story about how sin entered the world through our disobedience and that the world was going to be saved through a Savior. Death, according to Scripture, is what we deserve for our rebellion. In the day that you eat of the fruit that I commanded you not to eat, God says to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now we learn in the crucifixion of Jesus that it's not just any death that does it. Because, you know, as Christians, we use this language, right? Jesus took my place on the cross. And so as we see Jesus on the cross, we recognize that it's not just um, any death that will do, but a shameful, gory, painful death. That is the death that we deserve. Now that horrifies us on a number of levels. First, just looking at Jesus Jesus' crucifixion were horrified in and of itself because of the gore, the injustice of the trials, the mob justice that prevailed, the railing against him by high-handed criminals. But we're also horrified at the suggestion that we deserve crucifixion, that we deserve capital punishment. I mean, would any of you say that you deserve the death penalty? Most of you might agree that the criminals, the murderers on the sides of Jesus, they probably deserved the death penalty. They needed Jesus to take their place because they'd done something awfully wrong. We always like to see ourselves as the heroes of stories. But in this passage that Morgan read for us, there's only one hero in that whole passage. Everyone else was not. Everyone else lived in light of their own kingdom, their own reign. They didn't say, God, your will be done. They said, my will be done. They shouted, crucify him. These people rec represent us more than we would like to admit. And in fact, I'd like to argue that had we been there, we would have all been in the crowd shouting, crucify him. Now, at first glance, we may not see ourselves in these people uh, we may assume that they deserve some of these uh, judgments, but not being guilty of the very same things, surely we could not. But I'd like us to reconsider that for a second as we look at some of these groups of people that are identified and some of, these, some, some of these people that are set before us in this passage that we read in Luke. We might never say that we've murdered someone like the people next to Jesus on the cross, but Jesus does say that hating someone is the same as murder according to his law's standards. Have you ever hated anybody? Brother, sister, parents, spouses, children, co-workers, neighbors, foreigners, random people that cut you off on the highway. Hate seethes out of us almost everywhere. And the day that we 
take of that fruit, says scripture, you will surely die. But it's not just the murderers. Uh, There's another example set before us, and that's King Herod. Now, King Herod loved violence and inappropriate pleasure. By inappropriate pleasure, I mean that the Bible said that he wanted his sister-in-law to be his own wife, and so he took her. He loved to indulge his every inappropriate pleasure. He loved to see violence done against his political opponents, including John the Baptist, whom he had beheaded at the request of his stepdaughter. We, like Herod, like to indulge our inappropriate pleasures. Like Herod, we indulge our inappropriate sexual pleasures. Like Herod, we prioritize enjoyment of fine food and wines over the care of our neighbor. And so we shirk our own responsibilities. Like Herod, we often prefer violence, shouting, bullying, and intimidation to get our way. And this is especially no more true than we feel that our authority or our pride or our dignity has been challenged. We ante up. How many of us have raised our voices for the protection of our own pride? In the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. Pontius Pilate is another character in this story. He's a Roman political military man. He was tasked with making sure that justice was carried out in Jerusalem and to prevent riots from happening in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Pilate uh, examined Jesus and found him to be innocent. But instead of exercising his God-given authority to release the innocent man, he uses his authority to score some political points, passing the buck, as it were, off to Herod. He and Herod didn't have a great relationship. He's trying to mend some fences. He's like, hey, Herod, why don't you give me your opinion on this case? I'd love to hear it. Now, when Herod sends him back, you can almost feel Pilate rolling his eyes in the passage because he's like, this man is innocent. He doesn't deserve crucifixion, and it's plain for everyone to see. I'd encourage you sometime to go back through that passage that we read and notice all the people who said, surely Jesus is innocent. Pilate tries to persuade the crowds but they reject him in an uproar. And instead of using his authority to set the innocent man free, he takes the path of least resistance and political expediency, washes his hands of the situation, saying, I'm no longer responsible. It's as if Pilate believes that sins of omission were any more permissible than sins of commission. If you've ever heard these terms before, sins of omission are the things that we omit, um, those good things that we are tasked to do, Uh, that we fail to do, sins of commission, are those wrong things that we choose to do anyway? Pilate seems to think that if he omits his responsibility to rightly attribute justice in this moment, he can wash his hands of it. He's not actually doing any wrong. We, like Pilate, often take the path of least resistance in our response to Jesus. We think that He is the king, and in his rule, that he cares less about sins of omission than he does about sins of commission. To be clear, he cares about both. But a further thing about Pilate is that he recognizes that Jesus is innocent, and yet he ignores Jesus' kingly claims. I wonder how many of us might think Jesus innocent but ignore his kingly claims. And this is what it might look like. Have you ever heard Jesus' claims and thought, I don't really need to make a decision about this right now. Have you ever heard Jesus' kingly claims and said, man, he set a really good example for us to follow. I should try to be more like Jesus. But I don't really need his whole resurrection thing. I don't need him to be Lord over my life. 
Maybe you've heard the claims of Jesus and you recognize and discern, like Pilate did, that following him would mean great sacrifice. It would mean giving up some of those things that you love, some of those comforts and power and authority. It would mean embarrassment in front of your peers. Pilate recognized that to subsume his life to Christ's claims would just be too much work. And so he takes the lazy and expedient way out. Putting off, recognizing, serving the Lord of the universe. Because I just don't need to make a decision right now. Neglecting the king of the universe is another fruit. When we take hold of and eat of it, we shall surely die. There's one more example that I want to look at today, and that's Peter. Now, Peter's interesting because he is a disciple of Jesus, right? He followed Jesus. He didn't murder or love violence. He didn't choose political expedience. But Peter, when faced with the challenge of public disapproval, denied that he ever knew Jesus. I wonder how many of us who call ourselves Christians have ever shied away from our faith. In the face of public disdain in your workplace, have you ever downplayed the God that you serve? What about to your family members? Frankly, maybe you're a little surprised that I'm even asking about this because we kind of think that Jesus would only care about our relationship with him in private. What does my relationship with Jesus have anything to do with the public square? It's clear that in Peter's life, it mattered. Peter, too, walks away from his call to obey God and merits the consequences of his disobedience. And in the day that he takes of that fruit, we will surely die. Now I would venture that all of us in this room have committed all of these sins. We haven't just broken the law a little bit. And this is just a handful of examples we could find. If we come through the rest of Scripture, we would see buckets upon buckets of sin that would be laid at our footsteps. There would be like all of these things that we have to deal with, all of these fruits that we have taken and eating of that deserve death. This is how Scripture ends up with us deserving crucifixion. This is how Scripture ends up with us deserving estrangement from God, being separated from his presence, from the very beginning with Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden to the Israelites being exiled. We are people who carry around way too much sin. Now, how would we begin to make this right? God told us, because in the day that you do this, there will be a consequence. Well, let's pay our consequence and see what happens. The problem with the consequence is that it's death, right? And when you die, you're dead. Joaquin, at this moment, uh, my son, has, has been having these conversations uh, in, in his like, make-believe world where like, things will die and then they'll come back to life. And we're trying to tell him because he'll start joking with people like, oh, I just killed you. And we're like, oh, no, no, you can't say that. That's like too far. And he's like, why? And he's like, well, because when things are dead, they don't come back to life. We all know that, right? This is the thing about paying for our sins. The punishment, the consequence for the sin is death. And people don't come back from death. If we need a savior, we need a savior who can go to death and back again. You see, the cross reveals to us just how far lost we were in sin. 
just how deep the rabbit hole goes. That it wasn't just a little bit of forgiveness, that it was crucifixion. That we haven't just broken the law a little bit, but that we are dead already in our trespasses and sins. And if we are to be saved, we need a Savior who goes to death and back again. And this is the second claim of the cross. Not just that it was awful, not just that it reveals our sinfulness, but that someone goes into death to save you. It claims that we have someone who is worthy enough to take our place on the cross, someone worthy enough to actually forgive us. It claims that we have one who loves us so much that knowing what it would cost, being nailed to a piece of wood, naked in front of spectators, beaten, mocked until he suffocated to death. Knowing all that, he went willingly. Listen to how Jesus describes himself in John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. You know what the crazy part is? Jesus didn't lie down his life for us because we were good sheep, because we were the perfect sheep. We were the most sheep with the, uh, without any blemishes. We were his enemies. We were shouting, crucify him. We were in the crowd. We were people that had committed this, the very same sins of people that we had seen in this passage. This is how Romans will describe it, the book of Romans in the New Testament. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the un godly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. On this Good Friday, as we remember, as we look on the crucifixion of Jesus and we see the horror of what our sins deserved, I hope that we can also see the great love the love that would experience such horror on our behalves so that we might really be reconciled, so that we might really be saved. Now, not everyone is saved in this story. We can't ever really know the hearts of people, but the story of Scripture tends to make some paths very clear. Peter, weak though he was, would embrace his need of the Savior, He'd stop insisting on his own way, on building his own kingdom by his own rules, and he would say, I need Jesus crucified for me. One of the criminals on the side of Jesus would also say, I need Jesus crucified for me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Herod and Pilate, however, comfortable in their own wealth and power, were intrigued by Jesus. They thought he was an interesting thought experiment. They wanted to bring him around and show him to their friends. Herod said he wanted to see signs worked by Jesus. But ultimately, Herod and Pilate would wash their hands of the situation and say, you know what? My kingdom's working out quite well, thank you. They stuck their heads in the sand concerning death. They never once really considered that it would happen to them. And if they did, they thought no one can escape it, so I just got to live to the utmost now. 
Insisting upon their own reign, they will receive their just judgment. Having rejected the good shepherd, they will stay in their own sheepfold in the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth apart from the life-giving, resurrected one. But for those who see the gruesome death of Jesus, the injustice of it, who see in it the depth of their own sin, and who see how much love is extended to them, and bow their lives into the reign of the one true king, and who say, I need this king crucified for me. To them, they will receive the forgiveness merited by Jesus on that cross. And although they too will taste death, they will receive the clothes of eternal life that Jesus earned because they follow a king who is able to rescue them from their death, so much so that Jesus could turn to that criminal next to him and say, today you will be with me. Not because he was good enough, but because Jesus was good enough. As we remember the crucifixion this day, I hope that you will see not only how serious your sin is, so serious that it caused the Son of God himself to be killed in one of the most gruesome ways possible. But I also hope that you can see how much love he has for you. Will you, like Peter and the thief on the cross, see the crucifixion for what it is? God's son saving us from what we rightly deserve because of his great love for us. And even through our horror, might we see the depth of our own depravity but also the extent of his love that would pursue us even into death. And if you stick around with us until Sunday, you'll see that he pursues us into death because he's going to bring us back out. It is only in Christ alone that this sort of forgiveness can happen. And so I'd invite you now to respond to God's word and sing this song and stand as we sing this song in Christ alone.